Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritupana, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Olga Buluk and Ladan Rahbari. Olga is an assistant professor of Europe's external relations at the University of Amsterdam and affiliate at the Amsterdam Center for European Studies. She conducts research and teaches courses on EU's relations with the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, specifically Ukraine, on civil society in Ukraine post-Euromaidan, and on EU cultural diplomacy in Ukraine and beyond. Her current project explores the politics of knowledge production and expertise in the debate on Russia's war against Ukraine. Prior to joining the University of Amsterdam, Olga has worked at the University of Kent, UK, the College of Europe, Harvard University, US, and Ghent University, Belgium. Laden is an assistant professor at the Department of Sociology at the University of Amsterdam and a senior researcher at the International Migration Institute, IMI. She was formerly the recipient of an FWO, Research Foundation Flanders Postdoctoral Fellowship, 2019 to 2022. She obtained a PhD in Gender and Diversity Studies from UGent and VUB, 2019, and a PhD in Sociology, 2015. Her research interests include gender or sexual politics, gender-based state violence and violence against women, political activism with a focus on Iran and the Iranian diaspora in Western Europe, and in the frameworks of post-colonial feminist and critical theories. Laden is a board member of the Amsterdam Research Center for Gender and Sexuality and the Amsterdam Center for Migration Research. Between September 2019 and September 2020, Laden was the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Diversity and Gender Studies. She is currently a member of the same journal's editorial board. She is also a member of Amsterdam Young Academy 2021 to 2026. In today's conversation, we are going to discuss their edited book, Migrant Academics, Narratives of Precarity and Resilience in Europe, published by Open Book Publishers in 2023. Laden and Olga, I welcome you to this discussion and thank you for giving me your valuable time. Yeah, Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for your interest in the work. Right. So let me first begin the discussion by asking you about the motivation behind putting this book together. Um, I will I will jump in with this question, um, if you don't mind. Um, it's interesting that you open by asking about the motivation behind this book, because once the book was published and we sat down and paused to reflect on the process, we realized that... Um, throughout the time that we worked on it, it, it ran on motivation. Um, it's, and it's ironic that the book on academic precarity has been an, a precarious academic project um, because at the time when we started, what I mean here uh, by precarious academic project, I mean that uh, it was not a project that has received uh, designated funding. Uh, it was not a book that was written for uh, you know, a concrete book pro- uh, contract. Um, actually, at the time when we started working on this, Ladan and I uh, have never met in person. We met each other through our work, uh, through the essays we wrote, and 
you know, which we read and which resonated strongly. Um, so, you know, throughout the process um, uh, of working on this book, it uh, ran very much in our motivation to work on this topic and, you know, to dedicate, to dedicate time and effort to it. Um, now, as I already just mentioned briefly, uh, Laden and I never met before we started working on this book. Uh, I read Laden's work, Laden read my work. Uh, we got in touch and met on Zoom because uh, this was the time of COVID lockdowns and restrictions, and there was absolutely no way for us to meet in person. Uh, at that time, we lived in different countries. We worked at different universities. Um, and we just realized that there's so much... Um, resonance and similarity and mutual understanding uh, you know of each other of our trajectories of our um, of our work um, even though you know we are placed in different universities different disciplines we come from different countries we worked in different countries um, so yeah we came together to uh, put a, to to put this, I mean, it's technically called an edited volume, but we like to refer to it as a curated collection um, because we were very carefully working on the essays, on the stories uh, that uh, the authors have contributed to this volume. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, maybe maybe Lada wants to jump <laughs> in or maybe- Yes, I can do that. Specify the question. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I'll I'll, I'll pick up from there. Um, for, first of all, let me uh, just thank you for the, the generous uh, introduction that you gave of us, uh, of myself and Olga, and I'm very happy to be here. Um, so yeah, I will uh, maybe talk a little bit about the motivation behind putting this book together. And let me start by saying that um, we come from a place of frustration. So migrant academics feeling very frustrated over how universities uh, basically treat them. And we, um, I, I guess this is something in the West, but, but I think it's also generally um, everywhere. We are in academic institutions these days that claim that they are diverse, that they are inclusive. And if they are not, they are um, aiming to reach there, right? So, so uh, this issue of diversity and inclusion is very central uh, to universities. But then uh, the experience of the, the actual life experience of migrant academics is that when they raise questions of um, you know, discrimination or bias or violence, sometimes even at the university, they uh, face dismissal, they face silencing, um, they have to sit in meetings where you know, they have to um, face uh, the, the feelings of the, the perpetrators uh, basically being exposed. The institution claims that uh, by exposing issues of discrimination and bias, they are hurting the institution. So in a way, the role of the victim and the perpetrator sometimes gets uh, reversed in these processes. And so um, for migrant academics, uh, to come together in this collection was to um, basically expose the emotional and political labor that we are doing um, behind closed doors, right? So these are not things that, that, that we necessarily discuss openly in academia. But of course, we do talk about these things among ourselves. So this is something that migrant academics are um, talking to each other about. So we, you know, in, in this is kind of our pastime. We sit to, we sit with each other and we um, talk about how we experience discrimination, we experience biases, microaggressions, and um, sometimes even more precarious forms of 
circumstances in the university. But um, it was this. So the motivation was to kind of, you know, collectivize this work that was already happening on an individual basis uh, by migrant academics. And we wanted to frame it in an academic way. And um, I can maybe explain a little bit about that in the next questions, um, if there is time, about how we see this book as an academic practice, but based on um, emotional and political labor that migrant academics are already doing. I think, uh, you know, I can pick up on this and actually ask you to talk a little bit more about what you mean by these practices and, you know, the emotional labor that migrant academics are doing. Yeah, maybe maybe I can pick up here and also here then connected to the um, to the role of narratives, uh, right? Um, so basically, the thing is that migrant academics are, um, as uh, the you know the chapters of the book are a, a very good testimony of, are experiencing all sorts of. Um, systemic issues. Now, some of these issues fall outside of academia, so their sources are outside of academia, but some of them are caused within academia because of the existing structures uh, within academia. And um, whether it is the things that are outside but aggravated on the inside, so for instance, when it comes to you know um, academic mobility, this is an issue that is not necessarily directly caused by academia, but it's also not tackled very well within academia. So the way that university policies um, are put in place, or for instance, visa procedures are facilitated, or I don't know, even like small things like housing. Thinking about like migrant academics moving around all the time, how much assistance do, mm -hmm. do they get when they are in precarious situations? Um, so, so these are things that migrant academics experience, but they are left alone in tackling them. And they are sometimes um, in a way uh, talked down to if they expose these issues as issues that are relevant to the university, right? And I want to bring in here also the, the, um, the, the issue of narratives, uh, because so, so for us, it was very, very important to uh, capture the the, the micro, the meso, and the macro levels of experiences that academics have. So not only the structural level things, but also, you know, the relationship that the academic has with the institution and the, the very emotional and embodied experience of um, the precarities that, that they face. And to have all of this within, you know, a chapter really required us to focus on narratives. So we really, we really want to say that for us, narratives were the way to go. They, they were the, the most privileged way to talk about all these, you know, different levels um, and um, as repertoires of all levels of analysis. So bringing really the individual, the history, uh, the institution all together. And the other thing that we wanted to do was that, um, as you talk, you you mentioned uh, the the kind of the emotional and political work was that the emotional and the political work is already happening. So there is uh, this, and I'm I'm, I'm going to quote Sarah Ahmed uh, and uh, you know the Kildare work of complaining and doing the analysis of what is wrong with the institution is already happening in private spaces when academics uh, migrant academics talk to each other. But uh, we wanted to kind of give. Um, I don't want to say give voice because that voice exists, but we wanted to frame it within within an academic kind of um, collective. And that is how our stories came together. If I may jump in here and, uh, uh, you know, uh, building on the word collective rather than just used and also going back to the initial question on the motivation, um, you know, what started as each of us living through our individual lives and, you know, trying to give meaning to our individual experiences, you know, then you share with a few people in your, you know, personal network and your professional network, and you realize that there are, you know, some echoes and resonances. But what happened that 
once you know Ladan and I published our uh, you know early work on this, um, we got huge feedback from people who would say, you know, I just you know changed the year and the place and maybe some names and you know I, I I've lived similar episodes, and that's also what we wanted to show with this book is that you know it goes way beyond the individual experiences and is much more about the patterns and the systemic issues as Ladan was just saying. Um, but you know, it's only through the individual that, uh, through the individual stories, that you can actually illustrate and expose fully, uh, and also in a very human and relatable way. And I just want to share an anecdote of how we were working on this, right? Because authors would be writing up their individual contributions, and Ladan and I would read them carefully, uh, you know, leaving all uh, sorts and types of feedback, right? So the drafts would go back and forth. And what would often happen is that on the margins, in the comments. We would be, you know, sharing um, our own anecdotes, <laughs> mm-hmm. right. certain events, you know, discriminations, microaggressions, absurdities, I would even call it, you know, and we would say, oh, you know, this happened to me then and then, oh, wait till you hear, you know, oh, do you want to know, you know, how this, uh, this went with me back in, you know, whatever, fill in the year. So we were already, you know, just uh, between Ladan and I, and each of the authors, we were already in this, you know, kind of dialogue with the three of us. And um, it's beautiful to see how the book now, you know, goes way beyond our, our, uh, well, little collective, I want to say, because it's just 23 people on board, but it's actually a huge uh, group of people for an academic project, um, mm-hmm. you know, to see how this goes beyond and how many more people, um how many more migrant scholars uh, find themselves in the different um, essays in the book. Right. I was actually going to also ask about the role of narratives or stories, but I think uh, Ladin and you have more or less answered the question. So, uh, you know, I also want to know how the term migrant is used in this book. You know, who do you mean by that? Um, uh, so, um, uh, the book is about migrant academics, right? And that was the necessary criterion for inviting people to contribute to the book, right? That they would be migrants and academics. Um, in practice, uh, we did not work, uh, we do not believe that there should be or can be one definition of what a migrant is or who a migrant is or who a migrant academic is. And we also did not feel that that was necessary for this book. Um, so uh, what happened is that we left uh, we left this to self-identification, you know, what is a migrant, what is a migrant experience, what types of mobilities. Um, In this book, we do not work with one definition of what a migrant, what migrancy is, who a migrant is, right? So we left that uh, to the self-identification of the authors. And in fact, that's also something that's uh, being explored on the pages of the book, right? When authors uh, frame different uh, positionalities and different experiences as migrant experience. Now, in practice, uh, that would often be um, the contributors to the book uh, usually, you know, went to other countries to work. Uh, some of them stayed, some of them came back, some of them moved on to other countries. Uh, so there is a, a lot of diversity on this among the contributors to the book. Um, contributions and contributors also div- um, vary on their countries, you know, their respective home countries, countries of origins, but also their host countries. And uh, I would say that probably for almost all of the authors, they have had multiple countries of stay uh, in the global north. Um, And actually, some of the authors 
have returned, uh, right? So they're writing up their stories, their reflections uh, from the experience of having returned uh, to their home countries um, mm -hmm. eventually. Uh, yeah. yeah, maybe I can come in here. Um... Uh, so, so I, I just want to say, um, so we, just like Olga said, we did not want to really define migrants, um, the migrant experience. Migrancy is super diverse, and there's no one singular way that you can capture it. But um, what I can add to uh, what you were saying uh, so far, Olga, or maybe maybe I can add actually two things. The first thing is that, um, so we wanted to talk about migration uh, in relation to academia because. Mobility is so naturalized in academia. It's almost as if to be a quote unquote successful academic, um, you, you have to be mobile. You're expected to be mobile. And um, it's not a choice anymore. Um, it, it is different when it is a choice, when mobility is a choice. Uh, it, it can be a very you know privileged thing to be able to, to be mobile. But once it becomes a mode of survival, once you have to, you know, move uh, not only necessarily temporarily, sometimes even for, you know, uh, longer period of periods of time, uh, multiple times throughout your career, well, uh, I, I would not necessarily consider that a, a privilege or something fun anymore at all. And the second thing is that um, mobility is considered a privilege. And I've, I've heard people say this, uh, saying, uh, you know, well, you academics can find jobs in, in other countries, and that's a good thing because, you know, your pool is bigger, um, and you know it's it is true that this is one of sec one of those sectors where you can find jobs in other countries, and that can be a privilege. Um, I, I think there is some privilege in that. However, <laughs> to think about this privilege, we have to also think about a privilege of who, right? Because um, if you have a high power passport, uh, if you're a person who has you know one of these privileged pass passports in the world, and you know um, basically what do they say that the world is your oyster? You can do you can go wherever you want. Doors open for you, borders open for you. You don't have to apply for visas. You don't have to go through sometimes very violent uh, border regimes. But if you are one of those people who are racialized and have precarious passports, this is absolutely not a privilege. Moving can be unpleasant, uncomfortable, and sometimes um, a very unpleasant and un even traumatic experience. So um, plus, besides this, um, it can also lead to all kinds of precarity because of the loss of, you know, long-standing networks and friends and family relationships, uh, loss of stability, sense of home and belonging, and, you know, all the, all the things that come with that. So we really wanted to add a much-needed nuance to this discourse on you know naturalized and uh, quote unquote privileged migration experience um and to show that mobility itself can also lead to different forms of precarity and I, if i may just add add a footnote to that right so a lot of very well um pointed out that you know we address mobility as that mobility is very much a requirement of modern day academia but it's also seen as a privilege and i want to add to that that also something that different contributions in the book pick up on uh some more than others is that this is also something that's um not only a requirement by in in the nature of academia, but also often expected of uh, migrant academics. It's almost expected that you move on. It's expected that you don't stay, and that has really um, strong, uh, really huge implications for how people uh, feel integrated, for how people feel they belong to where they are. You know how the host community um, accepts them or not, right? And uh, yeah, I mean besides the career opportunities and stuff like that. Um, yeah. 
students, we are also talking about precarity. So what is this precarity? And, you know, what are the different forms in which one experiences it, particularly in the academic space? Um, yeah, maybe maybe I can start with this. Um, so we use precarity to um, kind of analyze the state of affairs in the academy. So um, from hiring practices to, you know, problematic ways of uh, dividing labor, uh, you know, so supervision experiences, systematic forms of discrimination, racialization, and gender then um, racial hierarchies and um, so on. Uh, so, so precarity is basically a term that we use to kind of, it encompasses all of these experiences. Um, but it is not an absolute state. We are not considering precarity as an absolute state. Uh, we don't give one definition, definition of it. Um, we consider it a um, term that can change and um, also a relative term. So uh, think about this. So for instance, precarity can be considered a state in which um, an individual is unable to take care of themselves, like, you know, they can't financially provide for themselves or for those who rely on them. Um, so this is a, you know, a state of precarity, but then there is also privileged states of precarity where someone um, has uh, precarious conditions in one aspect of their life. And we have all cons kinds of arrays of precarity, uh, including people who are in, pre in really precarious conditions in many aspects of their lives or who perhaps um, in, in private life do not experience precarity, but when it comes to academia, they are very much in precarious situations. So it is really a, a, a term that um, contains different forms of experiences, that, again, depending on individual lives um, and structures. Um, so we don't def define it in that way. Another thing is that we wanted to show that basically all forms of precarity that we see in the larger society also exist in academia. We wanted to show that um, unlike how academia presents itself and unlike how it is oftentimes you know, associated with high social status, progressiveness, and you know, also because academics themselves um, engage with the question of precarity as a research question, uh, there is sometimes this kind of false image that academia is immune from things that it researches, but we wanted to show the opposite. We wanted to show that this is not the case, that we also experience precarity in academia to kind of break this kind of facade of academia being fundamentally different from other institutions in, in the society as sometimes it is portrayed. Uh, so academia follows a capitalist and then a neoliberal logic. Um, it, it is also a white institutional space. It, there is um, you know, racism and colonial ways of knowledge production, but also running the kind of the, the, the whole apparatus of knowledge production. And it also inherits and um, I would say also reproduces um, ex existing forms of biases that we have on, in our societies based on different social factors. Plus, um, just to add that there is also specific forms of precarity because academia is a social field with its own kinds of logic system and unique circumstances. So think about academic ranks that give access um, to power and resources to specific people, the supervisor-supervisor relationship, assessment models, publish and perish, and you know, precarious contracts and so on and so forth. So there is precar precarity in the sense that we experience in the society that also leaks into uh, academic spaces. And there is academic uh, kind of specific forms of precarity that we have in academia. And um, one thing that we wanted to really um, highlight is that uh, I go back to what I was uh, saying in, in, in response to your previous question about mobility and migrancy, that the naturalized um, notion of mobility is also 
um, a source of precarity. New forms of precarity are also produced through migration because of, as I said, loss of resources, but also because just being a migrant adds another level of complexity to uh, a lot of other forms of existing precarity. Right. So when we talk about precarity, we also have to talk about resilience because uh, I'm interested in knowing what kind of resilience do these academics and precarious positions offer in the face of the situation? Yeah, I will. Um, I will start with this um, question. Um, actually, you know, when we started working on the book, uh, it was conceived as the book on migrant academics narratives of precarity. Uh, and as we went on and as we were reading, you know, contribution after contribution as they were coming in, we realized that these are uh, stories of precarity as much as stories of resilience. Um, so much so that we decided to add, you know, a mention of resilience in the title. Uh, and um, uh, indeed, you know, when you when one relays their experience of uh, uh, discrimination, marginalization, exclusion, non-belonging, uh, various forms of precarity that are addressed on the pages of the book, um, you inevitably share. You, how you've uh, endured this, uh, how you've coped with this, um, how you've, uh, you know, how you've lived through this uh, in the face of the of the hardship of the situation. Um, uh, so, you know, the way the way we saw it, the way we uh, grasped it, uh, working on the book, is that resilience is the other side of precarity in a way. Um, and you know, maybe if you maybe if you search for the word resilience on the book, it will not come up that many times. Probably in the introduction, because we actually conceptualize it and talk about you know the neoliberal and non-neoliberal definitions of resilience and uh, how resilience is not uh, you know a, a good distributed evenly. Uh, it's not uh, it's not a good at all, right? It's 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 a capacity, and people have it to different extents. Also because precarity is not distributed evenly either. Right, but uh, but as you read the different essays, you will see that resilience is very much talked about, even if it's not uh, uh, mentioned uh, mentioned by its name, and not talked about uh, in uh, in those very terms. Yeah, maybe maybe I can fill in here as well. Um, so for us, it is very important, and I want to emphasize this here. Um, we want, to, we want to caution everyone not to romanticize this notion of uh, resilience. This is absolutely not what we wanted to mm. do, because resilience is really um, a concept that refers to you know individuals, uh, but also communities and societies uh, developing strategies to adapt to circumstances that they cannot change. And um, it is also not afforded to everyone in the same way, uh, way as Olga was uh, mentioning just now. So depending on the resources and, you know, the historical circumstances of different individual and communities and their background, um, they will be afforded different levels of resilience. So resilience is a reality, as uh, Olga was mentioning uh, very rightfully, but it is not an ideal state for us. It is not something that we want to aim for. Um, and hence, it should not be romanticized as, um, you know, something that we want to, you know, we strive to go towards. We do celebrate resilience and the strategies that our participants and collaborators um, have in this book, but I think that it is very crucial for us, and this is um, basically the, uh, the aim of this book, uh, to think about, ways that we can change the structures um, and not try to make individuals resist those structures better. So we really hope that the book is read in this way by celebrating um, 
and also understanding the you know the the different ways that um, individuals um, and migrant individuals and communities use the strategies to to adapt to um, circumstances in which they are they they feel powerless or they are uh, powerless, but we want to also think about ways that we can aim to go for that structural change. So in the beginning, you had also mentioned that you had started working during the pandemic, right? So uh, how has the pandemic further exacerbated academic precarity? Um, yeah, this is a huge question, right? And there are different ways to uh, to approach this. Um, first of all, maybe on COVID as the background context for this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, indeed, Ladan and I, we met uh, at the time of COVID pandemic when there were very strict lockdown rules uh, in the countries that we were residing at, um, in so much so that we could never meet Uh, and we could also not meet with the authors we could not easily meet at conferences we could not organize author workshops or any of those things right so this book was very much produced um yeah in this disabling rather than enabling uh period and environments. Uh, it was also very much the context of the lives of the different contributing authors because um of course, you know, all of us were dealing with the with the pandemic um, in our own ways and, you know, regarding to the rules of our countries of residence and regarding to our, you know, um, the families, the anxieties uh, and uh, all those things. Uh, you can also mention that, uh, you know, for... Uh, um, female academics uh, who have families, right? The childcare duties uh, have been uh, generally through the roof in this period with the closing, um, but I mean, also for male academics, right? So I just mean for um, for those uh, for those of us on board the project who have had children, uh, this has been also an extremely difficult time to just be able to work on anything, period, right? And in that sense, it's extra more, uh, extra remarkable um, and probably I should mention it here, that uh, many authors would deliver uh, their essays ahead of the agreed deadlines, uh, even though uh, the, you know, the, the circumstance and the general context has been so uh, hard to, to work in. And I think that's its own tribute uh, to um, how important this topic has been to the authors and you know how much uh, this has struck the chord, uh, how much... Uh, um, our contributors were willing to share and were um, happy that there is somebody to listen. Um, Mm. uh, COVID, this is, um, at the same time, this is not a book about COVID, you know, how did we survive COVID or what has COVID done to migrant academics? And it's not actually so much spoken of on the pages of the book, because usually scholars, you know, would reflect on their past experiences uh, in this essays uh, more so than their current experiences. Um, It does come up, though, in two essays um, directly, um, you know, in the essay by uh, Nora Kireri on um, on the experience of death, uh, set very much in the context of the COVID lockdown and her having arrived in France and go through this uh, extremely um, anxiety-inducing period, uh, locked up, you know, in a student accommodation by herself. Um, it also comes up um, on the in the essay of an um, Indian colleague of ours, uh, Sanam Rohi, uh, who wrote also about uh, the different ability of the governments and the systems to address uh, the COVID pandemic and, uh, you know, how difficult it is to be tucked away from your family, unable to help them or advise them or do anything for them, you know, because you're... Um, 
on the other side of the globe uh, and uh, how, you know, then this might affect your relationship also with your colleagues in the uh, country of being. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, COVID has been very important uh, factor mm-hmm. to the book. Uh, let, let me also come in here by saying that, um, first of all, we know quite a bit about the impact of COVID on migrants. Um, and, and like Olga said, this wasn't the centra- central theme in our book, but it was very much in the subtext. So we know that COVID uh, led to restrictions of movements, for instance, and um, that means that uh, there were travel restrictions, border closures, migration um, plans were disrupted, and migrants got stranded. And this is, uh, so the chapter that um, Olga was talking about, um, our colleague's chapter, um, San Amru, his chapter, on, uh, you know, her being in Europe when, you know, a devastating wave of COVID hits India and then there is this sense of powerlessness and uh, sadly she also loses a loved one. And uh, she writes about, you know, how this experience of death is perceived differently in Europe. And for someone like Sanam, um, COVID really left a lifelong impact because not only she was because of being a migrant, she was stranded in Europe and she could not, you know, join um, her loved ones, but she also lost a chance of saying goodbye to uh, someone she was very close to. So so this is the way that COVID impacts uh, migrants' lives. So separation from families and loved ones, uh, loved ones. And this also means that there is heightened risk of social exclusion, discrimination. And we also saw the rise of xenophobia um, in connection to COVID, but also um, sometimes indirectly um, impacted by COVID and mental health issues arising from that as well. So the isolation and anxiety and um, also a sense of uncertainty, right, which was shared. But then if you are a migrant, again, I want to go back to saying migration just adds a layer of uh, precarity to every other precarious experience that you have. So, of course, this uncertainty was um you know, widespread across the society, but migrants were experiencing this in a more intense way. They didn't know where they can, you know, start moving, where they can see their families and their loved ones again. Um, So if it was not directly loss of loved ones or getting ill, there were all sorts of other uh, precarious conditions that migrants had to experience during this period. Right. Uh, We talked a little bit about this in the previous answer as well, but uh, do you think that the identities of, uh, let's say, gender, race and religion uh, play a role in worsening academic precarity of migrants? Um, very much so, right? Uh, as Sladen was already saying earlier when we talked about uh, precarity, right? With this book, we try to explore the intersection. You know, acad- academy, academia um, is a precarious, you know, work environment for everyone involved. Being a migrant is a precarious way of being for everyone involved. The time we live in is a precarious time for everyone involved. Now let's see where we you know what happens where the three overlap, where the three intersect, right? And uh, add to that then aspects of gender, race, and religion. That's just the extra extra layer of precarity uh, that uh, people have to people have to experience. And I think on the pages of our book, um, the dimensions of gender and race are uh, addressed more so than the dimension of religion. Right. So we have dedicated sections, uh, dedicated parts in the book on um, gendered precarity and sexualization. Although, of course, many more essays speak to gender than the three, four essays that I included in this part of the book. Uh, that we also have dedicated part of the book talking about the embodied differences, whiteness, non-whiteness, uh, visible and visible inclusions and exclusions, um, 
and you know the complexities of privilege so uh we do talk a lot about well we the, the author collective right talk a lot about um the added precarity of um gender and race uh and maybe less so about uh, about religion um and uh, um yeah, there are many, many reasons for that. And maybe that's where Ladan would like to jump in. And um, this is something that that's definitely religion is an aspect we would like to explore more in our future work, uh, the relationship between religion academy uh, and academy and the relationship between religion and um, precarity. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I I do want to fill in here because I think religion and specifically from this location that we are speaking, right? So uh, Olga and I are at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And um, I think this is absolutely, religion is absolutely one of those things that we um, oftentimes um, leave out of our classrooms and other academic spaces. Um, and we have, you know, students and colleagues who are uh, religious who, who feel marginalized because of it. And this marginalization uh, culminates in the way that's uh, some religious groups, and, and in this case, I would say specifically the, the intersection between race, religion and gender is very, very significant when it comes to the context of Western Europe, because um, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is not news to anybody, but like the way that Muslim women, for instance, are treated in Europe, and that oftentimes intersects with migration or migration background. And um, there are so many lasting tropes about religion, right? So when it comes to um, academic spaces that we frequent in Western Europe, uh, religiosity as backward, religiosity as unscientific, and um, generally the way that secularism is also interpreted. And here, I just want to refer to the work of uh, Sabah Mahmoud, of course, um, in the way that secularism is considered, you know, this um, this way to go to, to arrive at a democratic society, yet that notion of uh, secularism is interpreted in a very Eurocentric way. And I also want to add a very short note on the kind of the religion race nexus, because religious uh, groups also get racialized, right, as we see in anti-Muslim and anti-Semitic racism, for instance. And this is something that um, I at least address in my own personal academic work, but we did not necessarily explore this in the book. And as Olga said, we would very much uh, like to address this in hopefully the next volume of the book. And here maybe a little bit on the, the, the working process, right? On the process behind the book. Um, we would uh, we did not work on the basis of a call for papers, you know, where people would submit these and we would pick the, you know, the best ones or something like that, or, you know, have a fully diverse sample or anything. This was not at all an intention um, and not at all the, the way we worked, right? So we approached people, um, primarily people from our own networks who we knew uh, closely and who we knew are thinking and reflecting about those things and might be willing and able to open up about this and of course don't get us wrong not everybody said yes but a vast majority of people did say yes um so you know we would invite people and say hey you know we're putting together a collective pro project a collective book uh on migrant academics narratives of precarity uh i know you know you and i have had uh, many of these conversations you know over coffee over ice cream over uh, you know, over dinner, uh, perhaps, you know, you would be ready, be willing, be able to, uh, you know, articulate those on paper for others to read. 
right? And then people would just come back to us with suggestions of what they felt comfortable writing about or what they felt was most urgent to write about or maybe what was their creative idea of uh, addressing the subject, right? So uh, in that sense, there was not much room for us to to say, hey, (laughs) write about your, uh, you know, the, the, the discriminations you've experienced as a Muslim scholar, for example, or things like that. So, um, um, so yeah, just just to emphasize, we did not go for you know the full coverage of the uh, you know precarity menu. There's not such a thing to begin with, and this was not the intention behind the book. Um, but yes, we are aware that you know some th- themes are therefore maybe more addressed than others, and uh, it would be interesting to explore all of them over time. Uh, Right. And thank you for those interesting responses. Uh, Lastly, you know, I also want to ask if the decision to publish a book on, you know, experiences of migrant academics in terms of precarity and resilience was uh, open access, a conscious one. Yes. And um, you know what, I want to maybe uh, jump in here and say that for us, uh, publishing this book, um, Open Access, was part of um, our aim to decolonize uh, uh, the migration discourse that we have aimed for. And um, so decolonization involves, of course, uh, to, to to go back you know, to uh, Mineola, for instance, involves the linking from the coloniality of, of power and, and knowledge. And we really aim to do this by uh, privileging silenced voices, but also um, making the work accessible. And and that was, um, uh, you know, the aim that we had and very much aligned with the open access um, publication that we went for. Uh, We wanted to include different kinds of geographies and histories. We wanted to um, include um, subjectivity and repressed subjectivities and subaltern voices that are not necessarily um, reflected in academic scholarship. Also using narratives was for us um, another aspect of this uh, decolonization uh, project that we had uh, to really prioritize different ways of seeing things and um, through autoethnography and uh, autobiography exploring the Again, going back to what I was saying before, the embodied and emotional experiences of being on the margins was something that we wanted to do. And um, yeah, to to do all of this um, <laughs> behind uh, a paywall was just not something that we we, we could uh, reconcile with. We were very clear from the beginning that we um, you know wanted the book to be accessible to our students and to our colleagues, and. Um, I, I want to add that because I did mention uh, decolonization. I want to say that we do not claim that we are decolonized. I don't think there is any project in the world that can, that can claim that they are decolonized, but we try to do decolonization. We try to uh, do decolonial thinking through our project um, and do a really a decolonial exercise. So this this is not this is a, I think a nice formulation because um, this is a path uh, to to decolonization of knowledge, but it's not, it's never full decolonization. Yeah, and um, to, to go, uh, yeah, to, to go back to the question, you know, was it a purposeful decision? Uh, absolutely. Uh, Published in this book, Open Access, you know, we considered almost, you know, as a matter of principle and a matter of policy, and we were very much seeking out opportunities to do so. Um, um, you know, beyond the the colonial exercise that uh, Ladan just spoke to, this was also just a matter of uh, the book being accessible. It was also, a, I don't know, I want to say a form of protest <laughs> against the, you know, conventional academic publishing 
uh, as Ladan was saying, you know, where the results of uh, uh, of academic labor are published behind paywall, which in turn reinforce the inequalities, uh, the exclusions, the non-belongings that we talk about on the pages of the book. Uh, we also wanted it to be accessible for uh, precarious migrant academics who might not have access uh, and you know might not work at the universities and institutions um, that uh, you know have access and can climb over the paywalls um, and uh, yeah this was this was extremely important for us that it would be published open access and uh, um, that it would be read and not just published mm, and, and maybe just to um, add to that to what Olga was saying um, besides academics who do research, this book for us is also for educators. This is a book that we really hope uh, will be assigned to students, will be you know, read by a, a wide array of people who are in education. And um, having an open access publication will facilitate this because um, not only for you know um, people living in precarious conditions, I think anywhere, just the price of academic books has, uh, I, I don't even understand the market anymore. I don't know who can afford you know um, academics books, uh, academic books who have you know um, price tags of like I don't know seven, 75 euros for just one book. It's uh, Unbelievable. So we really wanted this book to be open access because we thought that um, for everyone who wants to use this book or um, not necessarily the whole of the, you know, uh, entirety of the collection, but some of the chapters in their education, the book should be accessible to their students as well so that they can, you know, download it and, and read it um, as they please. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Ladin and Olga, for talking to me about your new book. And I've read the book, quite fascinated with it. I hope that more of our listeners go and pick up a copy of the book. So uh, thank you once again for giving us your time. Thank you thank so you much for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you.